for a weekend in August, when Parliament is in recess and MPs were doing whatever MPs do on holiday, nobody could have expected the frenzied Westminster chatter that was about to ensue. But when news broke on Saturday the 1st of August that a former minister and current Tory MP had been arrested for rape, political watchers everywhere were agog. The Sunday Times reports the allegations were made by a former parliamentary employee and that the woman had accused him of rape, sexual assault and coercive control. But the story was even more remarkable. As the Times had reported a week earlier, the woman who made the complaint to the police had already reported this MP's behaviour to the chief whip. Now, there are also reports that the Tory party chief whip, Mark Spencer, had been aware of allegations and had spoken to the victim. So who are the whips? They have a reputation as the shadowy brokers of backroom deals, the keepers of secrets. What do the whips do behind the scenes? And why didn't they do more in this case? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, inside the Whip's office. So I had reported an earlier story a few weeks ago from a young woman who had got in touch with me claiming that she had reported sexual abuse and threats from a Conservative MP to the Chief Whip, Mark Spencer, and that he had not taken those claims seriously. His office denied this and they communicated that he had not understood or believed that she had made any kind of claim of assault to him. And his office also said that Mark Spencer recommended that she contact the appropriate authorities. Esther Weber lives and breathes politics as the Times Red Box reporter. She first broke this story in the last week of July, before the MP had been arrested. Her story raised important questions about the role of the whips, the people tasked with keeping MPs in line and increasingly dealing with issues around bullying and abuse within the corridors of Westminster. So that was the first story we did, and... I remained in touch with the alleged victim and I knew that she was considering taking her case forward with the police because we know there are all sorts of reasons why people might want to speak to people they know first before they contact the police. But as we saw a week after we did that story... The news broke on a Saturday evening that an MP had been arrested and this was the man she had made allegations about that suddenly transfixed the attention of the whole of Westminster. 
Good morning and welcome to Breakfast with Nina Warhurst and Chris Mason. Our headlines today. A former Conservative minister and current MP is arrested on suspicion of rape, sexual assault and coercive control. For a sitting MP to be arrested is obviously very unusual and continued to dominate the news for about a week afterwards. You report on Westminster, you're sort of in the thick of it. What were you hearing from across Westminster? You know, were you hearing from MPs? I think there was a level of surprise that the MP in question was not suspended. What was really interesting was that this came hot on the heels of Charlie Elphick, the former MP for Dover, having been convicted of sexual assault. And we know that in his case, he was suspended before he was charged. And so there was some bafflement over why that principle was not being applied here. But we know that there's no sort of hard and fast rule that the woods have to suspend anyone in a given situation. And I think the strong feeling from senior people in the Conservative Party was that while an investigation was ongoing, this person should remain anonymous and they should not be suspended. And it was for the police to establish whether there is a case to answer. And just to go back a step, what exactly are the allegations against this MP? I mean, how strong are they? So the MP has been arrested on suspicion of rape and sexual assault and coercive control and we know in that context it's been reported that he was at the time in a relationship with the alleged victim. Those are the offences he's accused of. We also know that one of the incidents of alleged sexual assault apparently led to her seeking hospital treatment. So that's the extent of what we know about the alleged offences. It's really interesting that in your conversations with the alleged victim, before they went to the police, they went to the chief whip. Why would that be? I mean, in general, why would people report an incident or take their problems to the chief whip? Any member of staff working in Parliament will have probably had quite a bit of contact with the party they work for and the party they're involved in. And they probably know some people from the party who they trust. Therefore, if they felt an MP had done something wrong or even another member of staff, that might seem to them an actual port of call. So there are two sides of this. One is it might be maybe that the member of staff would feel this wasn't a massively serious offence and so maybe they didn't want to go down a formal route but they felt it was appropriate that the whip should know that maybe they could give this person a telling off or a warning. And at the other end of the scale, if it was a really serious thing they were accused of doing, then they might feel it was so serious that this MP needed to be suspended. And in that instance, it's only the whips who can make that change right away. And what about the police? 
Over the weekend, we learnt that bail was being extended until November. So, officially, this MP could return to Parliament next month and carry on as normal. Now, we now know he's decided he won't. He's going to work remotely until he knows if he's being charged. So do we know where that police case has got to? So there's been no real substantive change, really, since the MP was arrested. The police are continuing to make inquiries and they'll make a decision in due course over whether to charge this man. Now, for people who don't spend every day in in Westminster and don't follow it quite so closely, this whole institution of the Whip's office is fascinating and slightly alien. We've seen it on TV, we've seen it on things like House of Cards and there's a a lot that gets written about the power of the whips. But can you just explain a bit about how they work? Who are they and what do they do? So the whips office is one of the most mysterious and fascinating parts of Parliament. Famously kind of dramatised in House of Cards and the play This House... Come, Hal, uh, try and go slow. Oh, it's your maiden speech. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's all right for you lot. As whips, you're banned from speaking in the house. Oh, yes, you won't hear our names called. And they're fascinating because ostensibly their main job is to get the government's business through. So literally just to forward the government's policy agenda by making sure that people in that party, in the government party are fully behind our legislation that they're going to vote the way the government wants at key moments. But there's a lot more that goes with it. So the term whip comes from hunting tradition and the term whipping in, which was where the huntsman's assistant would use a whip to stop dogs from straying from the pack of hounds that would be going after a fox. One person who knows exactly how the whips operate is the former Tory MP Anne Milton. She spent five years as a government whip, including two as the deputy chief whip, the first woman to be given the role. I was brought into the whip's office by Andrew Mitchell, actually, who, good for him, decided that the whip's office needed a lot more women. There's been very few women that have been in the whip's office. Mm. And I ended up being there for five years until 2017, in fact. You know, you as a whip, you probably have about 25 or so MPs that you look after. Keeping very closely in touch with them, finding out what issues concern them, finding out what issues might come up that might be a concern of them, and making sure there is a proper conversation with government ministers about these looming issues. And that is really key, I think, to understanding what they do, because it's about keeping the party together, so keeping it behind the legislation of the day, but also kind of keeping an eye on any reasons why that might not be happening, any kind of political factions that are forming within the party, or any reasons why an MP might be unhappy in their job and feel like they want to take it out on the government. And that also applies 
to their personal life. There's nothing really off limits for the whips. They have to know everything that's going on with every MP in their party. And because they also have this almost pastoral role of looking after their MPs if they're unhappy, but also holding them to account to an extent and keeping them in line if they're not maintaining the standards of conduct which they should be. It's unlike any other workplace really, isn't it? The idea that nothing in your private life is off limits to the whip's office. And it's interesting that you say that they're there to sort of keep people in line to get the business of government through, to get things done, to keep people still voting for the government. Certainly from the the TV portrayals and things, it seems almost as if they're more powerful than the cabinet. They seem to have a, a very powerful position. They have a lot of licence, but it's still the case that their authority comes from the top. They are interpreting the kind of will of Number 10 and the Prime Minister. And we can see that in the ethos of the Whip's office has existed at different times. So under... David Cameron in the coalition years, there was what you might call more of a professionalisation of the Whip's office, as it's been described to me. So there were more women who came into the Whip's office, which has traditionally been a very male environment, although there have been very senior Whips who are women before that. When I was made vice-chamberlain, which is a role in the whip's office, I was only the fifth woman, I think, since 1501 to have ever held that post. And I was also the first, the very first deputy chief whip from either the Labour or the Conservative side of the House to be deputy chief whip, first woman. That's quite something. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a poor reflection, actually. So more women came in, it took on more of a kind of HR department feel. And partly because together with the Lib Dems, the coalition had a fairly comfortable majority and it wasn't engaged in hand-to-hand combat on every single bill or piece of legislation. The ethos changed really the the key point when it changed again was in 2017 when Theresa May lost the majority. And as one former whip put it to me, there was a choice at that point whether to continue sort of killing MPs with kindness or whether to put the thumbscrews on, as he put it. And Theresa May made it clear she did not want to lose a single vote. So the thumbscrews were out? Yeah, the thumbscrews were out. And 2017 to 2019 was a really tense time in Parliament. You remember all those late-night Brexit votes over increasingly complicated amendments and things that were designed to get the withdrawal agreement through. main question... In the name of the Prime Minister, the question is the main motion. In the name of the Prime Minister, as many as are of that opinion say aye. Aye! And, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty tense time for the Whip's office. And then it's changed again since the general election. Obviously, Boris Johnson has a huge majority 
there's less kind of general nervousness about needing to keep track of every single MP of every vote. And some people have accused Number 10 of taking a bit more of a hands-off or kind of remote approach. Then maybe they're not that engaged in the kind of day-to-day of what's going on in Parliament. And they prefer to look at the big picture and kind of what their huge policy priorities are but they're not that involved in the day-to-day whipping that that has led to a mixed picture where maybe they're not applying the thumbscrews in the way you saw over the Brexit votes but they're not maybe doing the pastoral stuff either. a bit more about those methods. So the, the killing with kindness versus the thumbscrews. I mean, there were always great stories about, I think, Gavin Williamson, the, the education secretary before, when he was chief whip, famously had a tarantula on his desk. I mean, how is it that they influence people and make people act in the way they want? Oh, the legends are men being grabbed between the legs. <laughs> You're uh, kidding. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. Uh, There are lots of stories around and information about people's adulterous relationships being released to the press if they didn't support the government. But these go back a long way. And I certainly wouldn't have allowed any of that to go on. Well, there are lots of stories ranging in accuracy. The stereotype, I guess, is the kind of House of Cards, Francis Elkart thing of a little black book that the whip keeps. Well, yes, a couple of leaks are all very well, but it takes more than that. A big scandal, perhaps. A political scandal. Or a scandal about something people really understand. Sex. Or money. Actually using misdemeanours or foibles of certain MPs to effectively blackmail them into behaving the way the government wants. So that's the kind of extreme stereotype. I remember saying to one whip, by doing what you're intending to do, you might win the vote tonight, but that is not sustainable. It might lose you votes further down the line. What you want to produce is a party, a group of MPs that try to be loyal and will always be loyal if they can, but you have to allow them the room to air their constituency concerns as well. And so I always used to describe it as being a cross between being a union shop steward and a government lackey. And Gavin Williamson is obviously nodding to that tradition when he kept a tarantula Cronus in his office as chief whip. That kind of slightly dark side. I'd say what is probably more routine, there's a story from the late Conservative MP Alan Clark in his diaries where I think he's a junior minister at the time, but there's some big vote coming up where he has some doubts about whether he's going to toe the line. And he's having a chat with one of the whips and he asks the whip, how are you going to convince people? What's your strategy 
for making people vote with the government and the whip says by offering them your job <laughs> does something up about it. It's also a system of patronage and favours and you can be in favour or out of favour. Out of favour might not be extreme as the France and circles of this world like leaking details of your private life to the newspaper but it might be that you're put on a really boring bill committee for 18 months or oh, something like that. There are many ways of ruining your life. Yeah, <laughs> these are the kinds of techniques which are used to keep people on the straight and narrow. The recent case that Esther has been writing about in The Times is not the first time we've heard of such behaviour in the Houses of Parliament. So there was a big moment in 2017 after the Me Too allegations about Harvey Weinstein and that spread to Westminster and there were quite a few different people who came forward with stories about alleged misconduct by MPs and ministers and it led to the resignation of a couple of them, Michael Fallon, the former Defence Secretary, and Damien Green, who was Theresa May's effective deputy at that point. Those were the ones that were sort of of a sexual harassment nature. Then there were wider stories of bullying as well. So we know that there's at least one ongoing bullying complaint against John Burko, the former Commons Speaker, which he strongly denies, but we know that case is still going on. There's also a bullying case open against Keith Bowers, the former Labour MP, which he also strongly denies. But the current system allows members of staff to pursue complaints against any current or former MP. We know that the complaint system has opened a hundred investigations since it was set up in 2018. And those are all going through at the moment. The Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme is Parliament's mechanism for handling complaints of bullying, harassment or sexual misconduct. It was launched in July 2018 in recognition of the lack of a normal HR process for staff and members of both Houses of Parliament. What we haven't seen is a positive resolution to any of those in public yet. And that's a really interesting point because there are some cases that may not ever be made public because of the need to protect certain people involved and their confidentiality. But we can expect there will be some to be resolved in public. And that will be a really important moment, I think, because then members of staff and MPs will hopefully see the system working and have a bit more faith in it as a route to go to if they feel they've been mistreated. While you were a whip, were you also in regular contact with other members of staff? You know, recently we've heard about bullying scandals and other scandals in Parliament, and it does seem like there's almost an HR role for the whip's office. Was that the case when you were around? Always has been the case, because if you have, say, 300 
MPs as members of your party, they will have the, you know, usual a range of problems that any workforce does. Divorce, marital problems, problems with alcohol, problems over childcare, you know, you name it, they have those problems. It was always done a bit by the Whip's office. As Deputy Chief Whip, I felt we needed to do more. And so it was as Deputy Chief Whip that I started to get a huge increase in the number of concerns that came to me. Maybe it's because I was the first female Deputy Chief Whip. I don't know. Maybe it was because I was seen as a sympathetic and listening ear. I'll never know, but I did get a lot and an increasing number. And what sort of concerns were you hearing? It was not just about MPs' behaviour. Mm. You get a lot of issues amongst staff as well. And the House of Commons is extraordinary, really. It's like lots of small businesses. So MPs are self-employed, if you like, and they employ their own staff. So you wouldn't just get issues between MPs and their staff. you get issues between the staff of one MP and the staff of another MP. And at the time I was Deputy Chief Whip, there was nowhere that staff could go to raise those complaints. Where would you send people if they came to you for help? So staff, I had nowhere to go, which is why during my time as Deputy Chief Whip, I went to great lengths to get cross-party support to put something in place that could be run by the House of Commons for staff. The House authorities were happy to help if I could get cross-party support. And different political parties had different processes in place. So I wanted a system that was owned, if you like, by the House of Commons, which is neutral in this, where staff could go. We made some progress, but none of that was a substitute for the House authorities owning a process where staff could go if they had issues that went beyond that. With this relatively new system about the independent complaint system, is it working or is there still room for reform? I think, as I mentioned, a lot will rest on whether we see more positive outcomes or whether we see any cases resolved by the system. And I think that should hopefully create more faith in the system and an understanding of how it works. And I think the other reform that people are calling for now in the wake of this case of the arrested MP is over and above the independent system that political parties should consider making their systems of whipping more transparent, so to actually spell out what would lead to an MP being suspended. Is that likely to happen? I think it's very likely that the independent complaint system will continue to be developed and refined. It's already been changed a couple of times since it was set up, so it didn't initially include former MPs and historic complaints, which it now does. So I think the independent complaint system will continue to be developed. On the question of whether um, parties will agree to a more transparent whipping process, that to me looks a lot more unlikely because parties do really value the way they've set up their systems and the control they have over that. 
And I think that will be a much longer term project if anything is codified about the Whip's office and the way they operate. Is there something about Parliament which just makes it quite a toxic culture for bullying and for harassment? I think any big organisation, and you can look at a lot of the other professions, I think have their fair share of issues in respect to harassment, bullying, inappropriate sexual behaviour. I think there are factors about the House of Commons that make it more toxic. There is alcohol on sale on site, which I don't think helps. It sits late into the evening sometimes, which doesn't help. And MPs live this rather odd life. Not all of them, but many of them, spending the week in London away from family and friends and children. And I think that actually adds to the atmosphere being quite toxic. Some MPs are also, I think, quite lonely living in London. I heard Jess Phillips describe it as being like a cruise ship. It's one way of describing it. I don't think many people would think it was as much fun as a cruise ship. In any job where you have got somebody, your employer, in this instance, which has immense power over their staff, you've got a problem. I think that is heightened a little bit with MPs because they have power not only in Parliament and in their workplace, but also in the communities in which they live. They are people who are respected and looked up to and taken notice of. So there's an amplification of that power. As someone who works in Westminster and sees this, certainly outside of COVID times, sees this day in, day out, what would you like to see change about the WHIPS office if, if it was up to you? It is easy to be sort of dejected about the way MPs behave when you're reporting on the stuff that goes wrong. People tell you the horror stories, hardly any of which make it into the papers. But you have to remember that that is still a minority of MPs and nobody gets kind of credit for good behaviour, which is probably, yes, it should be. I mean, we should expect our MPs to treat their staff with dignity and respect. So, yeah, it, it can be a depressing picture, But I am hopeful. Already we've had a completely new system introduced over the past two years. Without a doubt, it could work faster and it needs to be seen to be delivering results. But yes, I am optimistic about the way that develops. And I'm also optimistic about change in... The Whip's office, I don't think it will be immediate or easy, but I think past examples of supportive and encouraging behaviour from the Whip's towards staff is something that should be championed and hopefully something that Whip's will aspire to in their jobs, even if that isn't always reported. If somebody comes forward with a complaint, then something always must be done. The correct advice must be given to the victim. It's 
not complicated. It's if you think that criminal activity has taken place, you must go to the police and appropriate support supplied to that victim. Even when I was in the Whip's office, there was counselling available for people who came forward. We now have an independent process. The person who comes forward must be signposted to that process. But support must be in place. And I think with all these things, it's not just about what you did, it's about what you were seen to have done. These things must be taken seriously and political parties must take them seriously. been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times Red Box reporter, Esther Weber, and the former Conservative MP and Deputy Chief Whip, Anne Milton. You can read more of Esther's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print, or by subscribing to The Times Red Box email. For more detailed political insights from The Times, you might also want to consider taking out a digital subscription. You can log on to thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're available on the Times radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.